Welcome to the Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Disinformation Watch director Marcus Kolga is not happy with Canada's decision to return a Russian gas turbine to Germany. Aviation expert John Gradick looks at the reasons behind cancelled flights, delays, lost luggage, and the rest of the chaos at Canada's airports. BC Trial Lawyers President Bill Dick is pleased ICBC suffered yet another legal setback in the BC Court of Appeal. And Long Beach Lodge General Manager Samantha Hackett joins us to celebrate Time Magazine naming Tofino, BC as one of the top 50 destinations in the world. So, let's get started. Joined on the line from Toronto by Marcus Kolga from the McDonald Laurier Institute, here to talk this morning about Canada's decision to return gas turbines to Germany to allow more Russian gas to flow to our NATO ally. Marcus Kolga, good morning, sir. Welcome back to the show. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. Well, it's good. I'm quoting it now here from Twitter. Canada has fallen victim to Putin's deception and energy blackmail by undermining its own sanctions policy. Canada may as well be sending Putin missiles and bombs. Obviously, you think this was a bad decision. Why? Uh, it was. It was a. It was a really bad decision, Sterling. Um, my sense is that. Uh, that the Canadian government has been duped, uh, and like I said in, in that tweet, I mean, we've fallen victim to Vladimir Putin's uh, energy blackmail. Um, this is uh, the kind of thing that he's been engaging in for a number of years. Uh, certainly our eastern uh, partners in NATO in Eastern Europe and, and in Ukraine have, have seen this. They've experienced it. They've been victims of it. And, uh, and the problem with, uh, with sending this one single turbine, and, and that's all it is right now, is that... Uh, it hands Vladimir Putin a, uh, a victory. It, uh, it undermines the credibility of Canada's own sanctions regime. It uh, undermines our foreign policy, our defense policy, our human rights policy. Um, it, uh, it also directly enables Vladimir Putin to continue funding his war. He needs to keep bu- pumping that gas to Europe in order to pay for his war. The, the war is costing him right now a billion dollars a day, right. and he's getting at least that much in, in oil revenue. So it's a, it's, a, it's a big win for Vladimir Putin, and there's no real... It's a, it's a, a lose-lose situation for, for Canada. Indeed, and, and to say nothing of Ukraine, Marcus, and here's a quote from President Zelensky, quote, if a terrorist state can squeeze out such an exception to sanctions, what exceptions will it want tomorrow or the day after tomorrow? This is part of his statement reacting to the decision by Canada, which uh, was enormously disappointing, to say the very least. Well, you're, you're absolutely right, and, and President Zelensky is correct. I mean, this sets, sets a potentially dangerous precedent uh, in terms of our allies and our other sanctions. Um, uh, if we can carve out some sort of a, an exception for, let's face it, I mean, this is Vladimir Putin. It's his energy company, Gazprom. Right. If we can carve out an exception for them, then, uh, you know, we can carve out exceptions for all others, you know, anyone, any other entity, any other individual. And so what it does is, is that it opens this door where we have our, you know, our, our less reliable allies. You know, I'm looking at Germany primarily, who's really become incredibly over-dependent on Russian gas, mm-hmm. uh, Italy as well. Um, you know, I think that European policymakers who want to return to business as usual uh, with, with Russia and sort of uh, turn a blind eye to their, their invasion uh, in Ukraine, it, uh, it offers them the opportunity. And justifies uh you know requests for them to to dial back the sanctions so 
you know, again, it, it sets a terrible uh, precedent. And uh, it's something that the, the, the government needs to reconsider, quite frankly, and, and perhaps yeah, as soon as possible, in fact, um, rescind this, this order to, uh, to give Putin that exception. Well, now, Marcus, the government of Canada clearly expected blowback from people like you and, well, millions of taxpayers across the country. So they had their pals at the State Department in the United States uh, go very public with their support of the Canadian decision uh, with regards to their NATO ally. So how much cover did that allow Trudeau? Well, I'm, I'm not sure it gave them that much cover. I mean, uh, this is what allies do, I suppose. But uh, in reality, you know, I, I think the, the, what we heard from the U.S. And, and a few other allies, and certainly the German ambassador here in Canada, is that Canada's decision was intended to preserve unity amongst European nations yes. uh, in the context of Ukraine. Right. Um, I, I think that this decision, quite frankly, has done quite the opposite. I think that uh, many of our allies, especially those in, in Eastern Europe, are questioning the reliability of Canada. And I think that privately, I am sure of it, um, there are those in, in the U.S. and Washington who are also questioning uh, Canada's reliability. I think that the, uh, the, the announcement that came out last week about this took absolutely everyone by surprise. As someone like myself who's been watching Russia and certainly you know, keeping an eye on Canadian foreign policy in that area, I was, I think it, I, I would be understating my, my, my shock, uh, to that, uh, to that decision. It, it just makes no sense whatsoever. And like I said earlier, it, my sense is that, uh, that Justin Trudeau and his, his cabinet and whoever is making these foreign policy decisions clearly, um, doesn't understand the Putin regime, uh, and, and has been duped into making this decision because there is no clear benefit for Canada with this decision, none whatsoever, or frankly, our allies, uh, you know, gas will continue flowing uh, through through Russia sure. at, uh, or through, through those pipelines at Putin's whim. He has his hand on the throttle that, uh, you know, uh, Germany suggesting that that these turbines were causing a reduction in flow in that pipeline is nonsense. It is Vladimir Putin who is doing it. And Canada needs to realize that these are the sorts of games that uh, Putin plays to manipulate us into making very, very bad and dangerous decisions. Well, Marcus, you talk about now the diminishing role that Canada appears to be playing on the international stage and the diminishing regard many of those uh, who are our allies and partners in some of these adventures are are seeing. Is some of that diminishment, Marcus, uh, not only to do with this decision to provide this gas turbine to Germany and therefore to Russia, but also the fact that we aren't being very forthcoming as an energy alternative to many of those European allies, like Germany, who are over-dependent, as you've described them, on Russian products. Well, very good question, Sterling. Uh, you know, I, I wrote about this already three or four years ago, and have done so quite often. Um, you know, those of us who have been watching Russia and Europe um, have been concerned, many people have been concerned, about uh, about Europe's dependence on Russian gas. Yeah. Um, lead amongst those nations, of course, is is Germany, uh, and uh, and the role that Canada could be playing. You know, we could be building infrastructure to get uh, our safe and reliable gas from Alberta to the uh, Atlantic Tidewater and getting it to Europe. I've spoken to a number of European leaders, uh, especially the Lithuanians, who were very wise five or six years ago when they built the first sort of offshore LNG terminal. They've been waiting for Canadian gas. The Estonians, who are just now building their own terminal 
uh, offshore terminal. They've also been waiting for, uh, for Canadian gas and have said so publicly, and many other nations as well. And so Canada can really play a huge role in securing uh, European energy needs and, and by doing so, also shoring up our own national defense because these are our allies, let's yeah. face it. And energy is being used to blackmail them. And if we can give them the, the gas that they need, uh, it will also protect them from that future blackmail. But we need, need to get, get on this immediately. This well, is not something that we should be thinking about doing in, in the next few years. Yeah, this well, Marcus, we so now. given the, the, the government's hysterical anti-energy posture and the Greenpeace is running the Environment Ministry for crying out loud, they're essentially going to have to be shamed into doing the right thing. Is that possible? Uh, I, I'm not sure. I mean, given the fact that they handed back these turbines, uh, clearly, you know, there are some people within the prime minister's office uh, and perhaps the foreign minister's office who are, quite frankly, living in a, in a different world, in a different reality. And so I, I'm not sure what, what amount of shaming one could do to get them to understand that, uh, you know, uh, gas is, is, the, is the answer uh, in, in our transition to a green, uh, green energy. Um, the Europeans themselves are begging for this. Yeah. You know, the German chancellor said, or sorry, Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France, specifically named Canada about a month ago in a, uh, in a press conference, uh, you know, asking Canada to step up. So I'm not sure what else needs to be done or who, who can convince uh, uh, our, our, our government better than these, these foreign leaders who we apparently respect asking for us to do the right thing. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I'm not convinced <laughs> that the prime minister is, is listening. He should be listening. And quite frankly, what he needs to be doing and his ministers need to be doing is finding people who understand Russia and are realistic about uh, Russia's motivations, Vladimir, Vladimir Putin's motivations, so that we can properly uh, adopt policies to, to address the, the challenges that he poses to Europe, our European allies and ourselves. Indeed. Marcus Koga, always a pleasure to have you on the program, sir. You provide uh, 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 moments of clarity that are very important in a discussion as uh, widespread as this one. Thanks for taking a few moments out of your weekend, Marcus. It's always a treat to have you join us. Anytime, Sterling. Thanks for having me on. Here's a finding for you. It just came out yesterday. 70% of Canadians agree the widespread delays at airports across the country are a national embarrassment. A new poll suggests, with nearly 60% of the people saying they're avoiding travel until the situation improves. This is an Ipsos poll conducted exclusively for Global News and released just yesterday. And the findings include belief that there's plenty of blame to go around for the delays between airports, airlines, the federal government, and even travelers themselves. Here to talk about it is uh, John Gretick, who teaches supply chain, logistics, and operations management at McGill University in Montreal, and who has very conveniently written a piece at theconversation.com, which includes frequently asked questions about the chaos in the airline industry. John Gretick, good morning. Good morning, sir. Welcome back to our show. Good morning, starting. A pleasure to be here. It's good to have you with us, John. Let's talk about, first of all, we'll zoom into the questions that you've identified as most people's uh, being concerned to most travelers. But what's your take overall in the big picture this morning, John? Uh, oh, I think it's a mess. Uh, it's, it really is something that has been brewing uh, for about two and a half years as, as the airline and the aviation industry basically wound down from the pandemic, let go of tens of thousands of people, lost 
hundreds you know, or centuries worth of experience. And now the tsunami of travel is wetting everybody's appetite, as you so aptly mentioned. And everybody wants to go, and the uh, industry basically put a lot of capacity out there. And guess what? They haven't got the resources to be able to handle all that volume that has been sold for the summer of 2022. Well, I guess and the other part of it, John, was when the Minister of Transport, on the early days of discovering the realities that you've just identified, in other words, lots of people wanting to travel, no capacity to handle the demand, the Minister of Transport decided to blame travelers themselves on the problem. You haven't been traveling for a while. You've forgotten how to do things. It's your fault. Nonsense. Yeah, that was a little strange. But, you know, I think that everybody was trying to figure out, you know, who's who can we point the finger at, really, to basically uh, figure out, you know, who's uh, who are the root causes of all these issues. And I think there was a lot of flying, fickle fingers of fate <laughs> floating, around, floating around back in April and May about who's got it and who do we blame. We won't blame ourselves, you know, and they're saying, well, we'll blame somebody else. So they picked on everybody, picked on the airports, picked on CATSA, picked on CBSA picked on the passengers, picked on you know, the health requirements, the vaccinations, the you know, even the masks. So every, everybody got, got, uh, got a piece of the action. So let's talk, talk about the specifics of some of your frequently asked questions here, John Graddock. It's uh, why are so many flights being canceled or delays? I'm just going to throw the questions out because you've identified the responses in the, in the, at the conversation. Yeah, I think what, we, what we're seeing is that there's a realization among all of the partners in this process called aviation that, yeah, there, there, there has been too much capacity thrown at the system that there really has to be a rationalization of the number of flights that are out there. We haven't got the resources at the airport to handle the volume. We haven't got mechanics. We haven't got station attendants. We haven't got customer service agents. We, di- we didn't have CATSA or CBSA staff there. So everybody realized, wait a second, you know, the, the, the key driver of all these people showing up at the airport, whether it's inbound or outbound, is really the, the flight schedules. Sure. And that's when they decided to cut it back. So are the problems only happening in certain airports in Canada? Or, John, is this a worldwide uh, situation? Well, I, you know, in, in Canada, we see it primarily at Pearson and at Trudeau Airport. Who are the those two locations, basically, are the hubs that we have in Canada for international arrivals and departures. Uh, you know, Air Canada and WestJet have really built up quite a bit of an international presence in both markets. And, and that's where all the other international carriers show up. So... It really is the, 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 the point where if there's a melting pot of where all of this action is taking place, it's both Pearson and Trudeau. So that's what's, that's what's happening. And it's not just Pearson and Trudeau. The rest of the world is melting down as well. Okay. Uh, you know, we've seen we've seen Schiphol, we've seen London, Frankfurt, Paris. They're all in the same boat. Yeah, but John, we've also seen thousands of cancellations in flights, uh, domestic flights across the United States, weekend after weekend after weekend, and yet we don't see the corresponding chaos at their airports. What's the difference? Oh, I think that the the U.S. Department of you know the Secretary of Transportation basically had basically made a very very public statement that you know they're looking at trying to get the airlines to be very strategic in terms of the, scan- the cancellations that they're putting in place. So the airlines have been very, very focused on reducing the capacity uh, at, the, at the hub airport. So we don't really see it. But you, know, you don't hear much about it. And the U.S. is, is, is blaming shortage of pilots. Mm-hmm. Something we don't have. We don't have a phenomenon like that in Canada. We, we did a pretty good job of managing our pilot resource. The U.S., however, you know, lost 10,000 pilots during a pandemic. 
and they're feeding the finch now. Yeah. How about uh, traveling? You talked about pent-up demand and the lack of ability to respond. How are our travel volumes now, for example, compared to the last summer or the last summer before the pandemic? Is What's the relationship between the two, John? I think we're about, the last numbers I saw, we're about close to 80% of what we saw you know, uh, overall. Okay. It's much higher, 90% domestically, about 70% internationally, uh, and uh, it's climbing. So I think that, you know, we're, we're probably about uh, as, uh, six months, eight months away from being back to, if not exceeding, summer of 2019. Well, with that in mind, what advice would you give to travelers, and many of us who are packing our suitcases this weekend, we're, we're determined to get out of here. What <laughs> advice, uh, uh, you pass along some, some sage advice here, Mr. Gradek. I would suggest, you know, if you can travel light, do travel light. Don't check any bags. Uh-huh. Put the bags in the car- carry carry on because as soon as you put a bag in the system, uh, now you're going to be part of the of the of the shortage of staff to be able to handle those bags. Looking at connections, if you've got a a 45 minute connection to a flight at Pearson or a one hour connection at, at Trudeau, go back and re- and review that flight itinerary. Give yourself at least a couple of hours, if not more, two three hours of connection time, or fly nonstop to your destination. Uh, and the last thing I do is basically make sure you have a lot of patience, make sure you have a plan B in, in case things go wrong. And above all else, you know, have a sense of humor when you fly, smile, because the people that you're going to be encountering at the airport, you know, along with your fellow travelers, are all stressed. Everybody's been working pretty hard to get this thing done. They don't have all the answers. They're just dealing with a lot of you know, passengers who have been displeased. And uh, the, the tone of conversation at the airport uh, is not very pleasant. So be... Uh, be patient and uh, have a smile when you uh, talk to your agents. And As the old that. saying goes, be prepared to grin and bear it, right? Yep, that's it. Civil- civility will be the very, very key driving parameter for the summer. Yeah, but it's not going to be it's not going to be smooth and it's not going to be slick or easy. It's going to be bumpy on a good day. John Gradak, yep. great to have you back on the show, sir, and we do appreciate your advice. It's it's important right. stuff on a busy summer. All right, Sterling, take care. Have a good day. The B.C. Supreme Court has struck down as unconstitutional the provincial government's second attempt to save ICBC litigation costs by capping the costs successful plaintiffs could recover for experts in personal injury suits. We've talked about this before, and it's a pleasure to talk about it again to our our friend Bill Dick, joining us from Kelowna, where he runs the uh, interior office for one of British Columbia's better-known personal injury law firms, Murphy. Batista. Mr. Dick QC is also president of the Trial Lawyers Association of British Columbia. Bill, good morning and welcome back. Good morning. Thanks for having me on, Sterling. Well, it's good to have you back with us. We talked about this uh, when it went to trial a few months ago. Uh, this, of course, referring to the ICBC dumpster fire. But I'm going to some. Uh, I'm going to quote the judge uh, in the, the second attempt. The thinly veiled purpose of this legislation is to improve the finances of ICBC. Justice Nathan Smith goes on to describe how, but basically, another attempt to put out the ICBC dumpster fire and a second attempt failed. So this is, again, on, basically, it lands in the lap of David Eby, doesn't it? It does. And, and just, just, just briefly, uh, injured people have the burden of proof. They, they have to be able to prove liability. They have to be able to prove, ultimately, what their damages are. And they need to do that through experts. Um, and, and typically, the successful litigant gets their costs of those experts from the unsuccessful litigant. 
And historically, if there was a dispute over whether something was reasonable or not, a judge would exercise his or her discretion and say, yeah, it's excessive, it's not excessive. And and David Eby and ultimately ICBC said, well, we don't like how much we're paying. And so they brought in rules that would, would sort of cap what they consider to be reasonable or not. And it's kind of like a, uh, a divorce proceeding that's acrimonious and your spouse gets to ultimately decide what's fair and reasonable. And not surprisingly, it was unfair and unreasonable um, in terms of the rules that they brought in and arbitrary. And in this particular case, uh, the judge found that it created a, a, an economic barrier or a disincentive for injured people to proceed to trial or pursue their claims. And ultimately, the judge found it to be unconstitutional. Well, again, as as any citizen, as I understand it, in a free country, any citizen who uh, feels beset upon by government has the right to take the government to court and, and, and settle it or at least resolve the matter. Uh, this would deny court access to people who have been injured, uh, in many cases, through no fault of their own bill. So uh, what changes would uh, would one expect based on this second denial? Well, one would hope that uh, David Eby uh, would read this decision and, and take what this judge said seriously, which is this is preventing access to justice to people who are disadvantaged and disabled. And, and access to justice should be an absolute uh, imperative for, for our government. And what they should do is go back to the drawing board and say, let's give back that discretion to the judges. Judges will be able to decide independently what's reasonable and what's unreasonable, rather than a litigant who you're up against, a government, a multi-billion dollar corporation deciding for you. So let's talk a little bit about capping, because that's that's one of the big buzzwords of this whole decision, Bill. Uh, in addition to capping or, or trying to limit the amount of money that would be available to experts to testify on, the, on behalf of those who have been injured, uh, was there also an attempt to cap the amount of damages one could seek? Uh, n- no, not, not in this particular uh, piece of legislation. They did that in other uh, legislation called the Minor Injury Regulation, which they sought to cap the amount that you could recover. This was simply uh, a cap on how much you could recover for disbursements and how many experts you could actually um, have to, to help you and assist you to prove your claim. So let's talk a little bit about experts, because the knock on experts, of course, is that they're professionals. It's an industry, and they basically make a pretty handsome living going from trial to trial to trial, testifying on behalf of whoever, uh, receiving handsome fees for said testimony. And uh, Bob's your uncle. So this is an industry that needs some uh, attention. That's, that's, yeah, the, I mean, that's, that's the, the, uh, the rationale, certainly behind some of this. That, that, that was the rationale behind, uh, I think, David Eby's decision to say, look, there's too much money being spent on this. But there was already a mechanism in place in our, in our Supreme Court rules that, that would allow someone to challenge whether a fee was reasonable or not or excessive. And, and, and again, that was the, the discretion of a judge. And, you know, I've had uh, some of my cases where it was challenged and the judge said, you know what, that's, that's too much money or... Uh, that's excessive. And there, there are other ways to deal with these kind, of, these kind of expenses. You can go to the College of Physicians and say, you know, we want to put a cap on how much medical legal reports will be. And right. there's lots of other ways you can do it. 
So then uh, what's uh, now Mr. Eby is caught in a very in- interesting situation here, Bill, because uh, it, it very well could be that he's going to step down as uh, attorney general and become a candidate for the premier's job in uh, a matter of weeks, if not days. So what happens to this whole file while he steps aside? Somebody will be uh, appointed to look after the, the, the ministry. But is this essentially on hold until the leadership issue is over and we've got a new premier in charge? Well, there will obviously be someone who's going to have to step in and, and assume the role of attorney general sure. in our process and administer justice. Um, and in terms of this particular case, uh, ICBC and the government have already filed their appeal um, immediately, almost, mm-hmm. and, uh, and, and want to keep in place this unfair provision uh, in the interim. We're likely going to fight that and say, no, the, the law has been struck down and, and is deemed to be an access to justice problem and, and it should carry on. But someone else is going to have to step up in the interim and, and assume the role that David Eby had been doing. When it comes to the, uh, you, you, you use the collective we in terms of fighting this, uh, we being the Trial Lawyers Association of BC, do you represent your association and do you plead these cases in court, Bill, or do you have others who do that? Um, well, we, we work with, with our counsel. We retain independent counsel who will go forward and argue these cases. They're usually um, people who have constitutional law expertise. Okay. And, and, but they consult with, with me and others in, in terms of our, uh, our strategy and, and our, our legal arguments. And uh, we have a, a very, very competent lawyer named Ryan DL who's done excellent work for us. So, Bill, uh, final question to you. And we are grateful, by the way, for getting up a little earlier than expected on a Saturday morning to do this. But it's an important uh, file, and, and we, it's important to, to have your, your take on it because we've talked about it in the past. So what do you think is going to happen next? Well, in, in terms of overall, I mean, the, the economic imperative that brought all this on is gone. ICBC now is making, in the last two years, made $2.5 billion yep. in, net, in net profit. So the reason and rationale behind, you know, denying people their rights and, and, and really capping things is gone. I don't understand why the government is continuing to, to try to impose sort of this unfairness. But I think they're going to continue to do it. Um, and, you know, we have no fault now and people's rights have been completely stripped away. And I think that's going to continue on until there's a, a uh, either a political imperative to change um, or a legal imperative that changes it for them. Mm, interesting stuff. Well, obviously, we're going to keep tapping you as this goes forward because it's far from done. Bill, thanks very much for this. We do appreciate it once again. You're welcome, Sterling. Anytime. I'm looking at a list of the 50 top destinations on planet Earth for 2022, as identified by Time magazine. They include Kyushu Island in Japan, Rapa Nui in Chile, Salta, Argentina, Boracay in the Philippines, Portree, Scotland, Madeira, Portugal, Tofino, British Columbia. And the list goes, yes, I did say Tofino, British Columbia. It's one of the top 50 destinations in the world this year. Samantha Hackett joins us from, well, she's in Qualicum this morning, but Samantha is the general manager of the Long Beach Lodge Resort, very much a, a part of what Tofino is is all about. Samantha, good morning, and I suppose we should add congratulations. 
the morning, Sterling. Yes, thank you so much. Um, it is a very exciting uh, um, announcement that we got uh, this week. It sure is. Now, Tofino has long been uh, singled out as a Canadian destination by many noteworthy publications, Condonast and others. But Samantha, this is a biggie. Everybody reads Time magazine. The others are travel publications, but this is a much wider readership base. So I would imagine it matters more just in terms of reach, right? Exactly. And I mean, especially just being such a small town, as uh, the Time magazine notes, a tiny town, um, you know, we're just honored to be included with such a prestigious list of destinations. It's uh, it's been a very exciting week for everyone that lives in Tofino. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm, I'm, this is the first half of the first line. On the windswept west coast of British Columbia's Vancouver Island lies tiny Tofino. <laughs> and then it goes on and on. They're not shy about the size of the town. Samantha, it is tiny. And yet, even during COVID, it just became, it can so easily become overwhelmed. Yes, it definitely can. And I think that is just, you know, the the proximity of being a very remote destination and then also um, being a smaller destination um, that uh, that it just we we are always on that wide stage, that world stage, um, which is just amazing. Uh, it can be overwhelming, but uh, we're all very excited. I've been chatting with lots of uh, industry people and uh, and the residents and everyone's just so excited to to be part of this list. Well, it is a big deal, isn't it? But let's just, just zoom in on BC and our domestic marketplace, Samantha, because as you mentioned, during the last couple of years, the proximity to the Lower Mainland and the access to Tofino that BC Ferries, etc., provides uh, with without the traffic from British Columbians over the last couple of years, Tofino would be in much tougher shape today than it, than it is, correct? That is that is absolutely correct. We are very lucky that British Columbians are um, very savvy travelers and and really love to travel, and so we've been able to uh, be that location, that local location that when people are trying to get away and are not able to go any further, that they're able to come have um, some solitude. And, and and because we are a year-round destination, that's been a really helpful thing through these last uh, few years, that it doesn't matter what time of year you're able to do some sort of exciting activity. Um, the one that was uh, featured as part of the article was the floating sauna, sure. which is a great new um, amenity, but it's a year-round amenity. And that's one of the things that we're very lucky with our weather that you know we're not getting crazy cold um, and so in the winter it's a great destination and uh, lots of activities year-round. So Matthew, have you had a chance to check out the floating sauna? I have actually had the pleasure to go out there twice. Um, I went out there uh, the first time and had such a great time that uh, um, I booked with some friends to go back. Um, it's an amazing a location, an amazing amenity, and just a very special place that uh, has been created out there. And, you know, the other part that about Tofino that is so attractive to so many people is the fact that so much of it is national park. There's just so much open territory there. Now, it's managed. We have park rangers and that sort of thing. It's not a Wild West show, but it's also really open country that's very inviting that way because there's so much room. Yes, yeah, exactly. Well, and the tagline under our heading is Wilder West, which uh, I, I actually, it's kind of a neat way to say it. I've uh, never heard that being used. Um, but, you know, we have so much of that community focus on in the environmental protection and conservation, which we've had 
for for years and years and just you know that's how the Pacific Rim National Park came to be and we've had the designation of the UNESCO um, Biosphere Reserve sure. yep. which is amazing um, so it, you know ensuring that not just the residents but you know also our visitors live sustainably within the the community and our surrounding areas um, you know is really important and uh, and that's how we're able to then share the area and and what draws people back to the area. Samantha, in a typical year, not a pandemic year, and we've been lucky, as you've just discussed, that, that you've had the support of so many British Columbians to get you through this rough patch of the last couple of years. But in a mm-hmm. typical year, and we do remember what they were like, I hope, uh, <laughs> what, what percentage of, of business in Tofino would be international versus British Columbia generated? Well, that's actually the interesting thing. Although we had a lot of international guests um, years previous, um, we we didn't rely solely on international. Um, as I sort of mentioned, British Columbians, you know, are, are great travelers, and so we've always had a really great market locally. And so, I mean, we're probably it's less than fifty percent internationally. Some different um, properties or different aspects of our community do rely on international um, guests more depending on the amenities and and accommodation um, but some some don't see very, very many international guests at all so um, it's been it's been something that has been an adjustment um, but this year we've slowly had an international guest come back and so it hasn't uh, been too much of a of a hit for for anyone in the community. Mm, it doesn't hurt either that it's one of the few places in the entire country where a person can go and sign up for surfing lessons, does it? Exactly. And again, year-round, the fact that you can surf where such a, um, a gentle surfing area um, for learning and, and as you're advancing in the surfing world. So that has really helped um, helped our community to be able to do that year-round. Not on, not on a storm season day, but it's that's the nice thing, I think, with our areas. If it's not good surf, then it's storm watching, and that's an amazing uh, thing to see as well. Well, now, storm watching. Now, there's a marketing moment of genius, isn't it? How to take crummy weather and turn it around and pack the place anyway with storm watchers. That was brilliant. And how many years ago was that? Because it's really working, isn't it? Oh, it's yeah, it's been at least 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, that, is, that has been a great marketing. but it, And it also has been just such a true reality. You know, it could be January it could be beautiful, sunny in Tofino, um, and it's amazing to be in Tofino on those days. Um, but then the flip side is that it's stormy and wild um, as uh, as we keep using, and, and that's also uh, pretty spectacular. wanted to ask you, you mentioned overwhelmed a little while ago, and, and I know the community, Samantha, has been taking steps uh, to a, to deal with the reality of the popularity. And this is, this is going to be uh, just a real shot of the arm, as if you need more crowds, uh, but you're going to get them anyway. And again, you've had that problem in the last couple of years, campers and so on, and you're trying to make adjustments to deal with even more popularity. How's that going for this summer? It's actually going really well, and I think that's been one of the the great things to see the community come together and, you know, have a bit of that time over the last two years to um, to really work together and make sure that we're, you know, in, encompassing that inter- interconnectedness of each other, um, but then also paying attention to our natural environment and and making sure that that we are utilizing each other and working together to protect 
um, you know, it, our priorities are, of course, our, you know, social and economical things, but also, you know, what's going on, you know, culturally, interconnectedly with our environment and how can we work together. So partnerships and, and just uh, talking, meeting in person again has been helpful sure. to, uh, to really come together and prioritize that. Well, you know, it's, it's a wonderful story. It's, it's fun to have a few moments to chat with you about it, Samantha, because it, uh, it really is, it's, it's a wonderful feather in the cap for a, a destination that those of us who are savvy travelers, as you point out, most British Columbians to be, we've known about this forever. I love Tofino, but now the rest of the world is catching on. So brace yourself. Uh, the folks will be showing up. Yes, amazing. Thank you so much. And it's a win for, you know, British Columbia as well. That's the neat thing. It doesn't say Canada on the listing. It's Tofino, British Columbia, which I think is a a testament to all the amazing locations in British Columbia as well. Well, congratulations to you and all involved in making Tofino one of the top 50 destinations on planet Earth. Samantha Hackett, we appreciate this. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live, 6 to 9, weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.